It's Friday, August 24th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. A new EPA assessment finds that despite some progress in the Chesapeake Bay cleanup effort, Pennsylvania's still not keeping up with mandatory benchmarks. No big surprise there. However, the report comes amid development of the Commonwealth's Phase 3 Watershed Implementation Plan for the Bay, laying out what the next seven years of restoration will look like. And unlike previous versions, this plan is focused on getting the job done at ground level. And this approach is far more collaborative. It is far more driven on data. And for the first time ever, it tries to create a more localized scale so as to make it real, tangible, and implementable at a county scale. Perhaps even more importantly, the Phase 3 WIP grapples directly with funding challenges, seeking out concrete ways to pay for the local projects that will ultimately make the difference. Is Pennsylvania finally ready to turn the corner on the Chesapeake Bay? We'll find out on this episode. But first, a quick audio postcard from the northern Poconos, where trail planners and advocates convened last week for the quarterly meeting of the Northeast Pennsylvania Trails Forum. The gathering included a special treat for participants, a scenic tour aboard a restored passenger train car along a historic railroad line. Outdoor recreation is, of course, already a big part of that region's economy. Lately, though, there's growing interest in the idea of a trail system running along the railroad's route side-by-side with the tour train. PEC's Director of Trails and Outdoor Recreation, Frank McGuire, rode along on last week's outing. There he had a chance to chat with the railroad's owner and operator and trails advocate, Tom Miles. What is the name of the railroad? We're in Honesdale. Where does this railroad take us? It takes us from Honesdale, Pennsylvania, through Holly, down to Lackawaxon, and it's called the Storbridge Line. So before you were telling us about your time in the railroad, your, your history with the railroad, can you give us a little bit of recap of that and how you got to be here today? Well, I've been in the railroad business since I left college. Uh, actually, before college. I... Um, Graduated in 1963 out of high school, went to work for the Pennsylvania Railroad, Penn Central, Conrail, uh, then the CSX and Norfolk Southern. I have uh, been 55 years on the railroad, and uh, this is a kind of a long lifetime hobby. And you mentioned that you were involved in the, the Scenic Railroad in Wellsboro as well. That is correct. I built the railroad over there, the dinner trains, and uh, the, the operation on the Tioga Central. Great. So now that you're in Honesdale on the Storebridge line, what would you like to see happen here? Well, I would like to see a unique uh, concept called Rails and Trails. Uh, we've, been cons- we've been working with the local groups here for about the last two or three years to create a, uh, a movement that would put the trail in as well as the rail, retain the opportunity of the excursion and the potential freight operations. Uh, and put the trail in alongside the railroad uh, for the enjoyment of this area. And if people were to come here to, to enjoy it, what, what are the types of things that they would see that they wouldn't get elsewhere? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly historic area. It goes back, dates back to the early 1800s uh, in the movement of canals and water and uh, coal, excuse me, on the canals into New York City to uh, keep the furnaces warm at night. Um, it's a, uh, it's got some very nice homes and very nice lakes. Uh, it has a, uh, Lake Wallenpaupack, for example, 
Uh, we have uh, just a very, very nice community here of people. And actually, that's the number one reason I like these places, the people that are here located. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about? Well, I, I guess four years ago when I bought this railroad, I, I looked at it as a very uh, rural area, and I, I kind of looked at the Honesdale and some of the other adjunct railroads around here uh, and trails uh, as a like a large park. It looked to me like a very large resort area that would uh, attract people to come and camp and uh, stay enjoy the sights, enjoy the fishing, enjoy the sports, if you will, of the area, to include trail hiking and, and so forth. The potential here for that kind of concept is, is large, and uh, I think we should preserve it now before it becomes something else. That's Frank McGuire, director of PAX Trails and Outdoor Recreation Program, speaking with Tom Miles of the Sturbridge Line. You can check out a short video of that train ride during last week's NEPA Trails Forum at our website, PECPA.org. There you can find links and more information about scenic excursions on the Sturbridge Line. Again, it's at PECPA.org. Last month, the EPA released its midpoint assessment of the Chesapeake Bay cleanup effort, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. Overall, water quality in the bay is better than it's been in decades, and populations of some aquatic species are also on the rebound. At the same time, though, Pennsylvania is well behind schedule when it comes to reducing nutrient pollution entering rivers and streams, notably from agricultural runoff. Meanwhile, nutrient load from municipal sources is actually on the rise, as it turns out. All this as Pennsylvania, along with six other jurisdictions subject to federal total maximum daily load, or TMDL, standards, is working to chart a course for the next seven years. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation is keeping a close watch on states as they develop their Phase 3 Watershed Implementation Plans, or WIPs. CBF's Executive Director for Pennsylvania is Harry Campbell. He joins us now for an update on where things stand with the Bay. Harry, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thanks for having me. Before we get into talking about how the Bay is doing, a little background on the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and the, the work that you do at the state level. What are you doing in Pennsylvania, and how do you coordinate with efforts in the other Bay states? Sure. Uh, the Pennsylvania Office of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation was actually established back in 1986 and has been working diligently throughout that period of time to fulfill our mission of saving the Bay through restoration, policy work, education, outreach, and advocacy, as well as uh, as necessary, litigation. Um, in the major Bay states, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland is the primary focal point of our endeavors, but we work throughout the watershed with a whole myriad of partners uh, exploring and uh, uh, addressing these opportunities to restore the health and condition of our local rivers and streams and ultimately the Chesapeake Bay. How does Pennsylvania compare with uh, the other states in terms of you know, our contribution to the problem and also in terms of progress toward the cleanup goals? Well, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, has a, a fairly significant impact on the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, in fact, 
the Susquehanna River is the largest source of fresh water entering into the Chesapeake Bay, with uh, roughly 18 million gallons per minute on an average day flowing past right here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and down to the um, mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it is the a significant influencer, both in terms of the nitrogen, phosphorus, and unfortunately sediment pollution that is affecting the Chesapeake and its health and condition. So focusing in on the EPA midpoint assessment that we just got last month, uh, can you kind of summarize the most important points contained in that report? Uh, what's the takeaway for us in Pennsylvania? Is there anything unexpected in there? Well, unfortunately, the report did not contain anything too unexpected in that it identified areas of progress uh, throughout the entire Bay watershed, including in Pennsylvania. But in doing so, identified Pennsylvania's endeavor, particularly at addressing the nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment pollution that is coming from agricultural landscapes and our urban and suburban areas in the form of stormwater runoff as being significantly behind in meeting our commitments. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about how the contributors of watershed pollution break down. You mentioned um, urban and suburban stormwater and uh, agricultural runoff. So the agricultural load, depending on the, the parameter at hand, but it's roughly about 60% of the overall pollution load that's coming from the Susquehanna and Potomac River watersheds and entering into the Chesapeake Bay. Stormwater runoff uh, contributes approximately 15 to 20% of that load, depending on the, the year and how much precipitation or runoff we get. And then roughly 15% as well coming from uh, wastewater treatment plants are the three major sources, uh, identified sources of nutrient and sediment pollution entering the Chesapeake Bay from Pennsylvania. In addition to that, though, uh, Pennsylvania's own rivers and streams are affected by this type of pollution. And in fact, of the 19,000 miles of rivers and streams in Pennsylvania that have been identified as impaired from scientific assessments by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and others, uh, the leading identified source of impairment is agricultural activities, followed by the legacy of coal mining activities in parts of the state. And the only growing source is urban and suburban stormwater runoff, and that's coming in third. So these uh, impairments not only address, or these uh, pollution sources not only address the Chesapeake, but have a profound impact on our own local rivers and streams as well. And I would think from a standpoint of total ignorance, I should be clear, but I would think that the urban and suburban stormwater should be, in theory, you know, easier to contain, easier to manage just insofar as it's localized, uh, whereas agriculture is everywhere. Very hard to get a handle on, I would think. It's surprising that it would be increasing. Yeah, and well, one of the factors associated with that increasing load is that obviously as development increases, we're fundamentally changing the form and function of those watersheds in terms of the, the hydrology and the hydraulics. And what I mean by that is that as we armor these stream, uh, our watersheds with impervious surfaces, uh, you, you have a situation in which excessive amounts of uh, precipitation no longer uh, go into the ground or into the vegetation or up into the air due to evaporation, they tend to actually go to the nearest receiving water body or into these detention basins historically. We're slowly evolving to include more green infrastructure that is more based on nature's own type of systems and stormwater management, um, but that is slow in progressing or becoming, if you will, the standard across the state. 
in terms of addressing stormwater. It actually, uh, while it is correct that it's, it's potentially more identifiable and located in the areas compared to, say, uh, the 55,000 farms that are across the state of Pennsylvania, of which over 33,000 are just in the Chesapeake Bay watershed alone, uh, the, the simple fact of the matter is the research indicates that addressing the agricultural pollution sources, keeping soils and nutrients on the land instead of in the water from our agricultural locations is actually far more cost-efficient hmm. on a per-pound basis. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. But when you're talking about like a downtown area like Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, or even some of our first-ring, second-ring suburbs, in addressing those kind of pollutant loads, you got to start to think about all of the above ground and underground infrastructure, right? And digging up streets and placing things in certain locations and reinforcing rooftops, and all of that is needed and necessary and beneficial for our communities, for our economy, and for our health, and certainly for the environment. But it can is comparatively less, more expensive than. Uh, many of the agricultural practices like cover crops, conservation tillage, forested riparian buffers, and tree plantings in our more rural landscapes tend to be more, far more cost-effective on a per pound of pollution-reduced basis. Hmm. Now, now, Pennsylvania and the other states in the, in the Bay Watershed are responsible for producing what's called a Watershed Implementation Plan or a WIP. And we are in the process of putting together the third phase of Pennsylvania's WIP. Um, can you give me an update on how that is progressing and whether the, the new EPA assessment is going to shape that process in any way? Well, the process to develop the phase three WIP is actually currently under, being undertaken right now right. Uh, with a number of work groups and a steering committee represented by and headed up by the uh, secretaries of the Department of Environmental Protection. Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and the Department of Agriculture. And it's a fundamentally different approach uh, than has been undertaken not only in the Phase 1 and 2 WIPs, which were earlier in this decade, uh, upon establishment of the Chesapeake Bay TMDL in 2010, but even the previous plans that Pennsylvania has undertaken to try to, quote-unquote, save the Bay. And this approach is far more collaborative. It is far more driven on data. And for the first time ever, it does two things fundamentally different. A, it tries to create a more localized scale so as to make it real, tangible, and implementable at a county scale. Previously, the, the types of plans that Pennsylvania developed were for like the Susquehanna and Potomac River basins or the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed of Pennsylvania. Those didn't really resonate well or at all to local landowners, municipalities, communities across the watershed. And this plan is moving forward with a more localized approach. And then secondly, for the first time ever, it is deliberately exploring the need for funding opportunities and has a work group that is explicitly tasked with this uh, particular challenge and includes uh, representatives from the legislature. Because one of the fundamental challenges that Pennsylvania has faced is that we've created a number of plans, and those plans had the promise to solve our 
pollution challenges, our clean water blueprint, if you will. However, over the course of time, what has not happened is the resources, the investment in the programs, new and existing, to the degree to which to actually implement those plans. And as a result, those plans are simply promises, uh, by and large, uh, and we really never fully realized their potential. And thus, we find ourselves in the situation we are today, in which EPA is identifying that we are significantly behind in what we promised to do and have a significant amount of effort ahead of us to get back on pace. So the hope is that in phase three, we, we finally begin to follow through on, the, on some of the promises made. Can you give me an example of, uh, of the kind of localized approach that you were talking about? What's something that uh, a county or a municipality might be able to do to, to contribute to this effort? Well, the first thing that's actually going to be undertaken is that the counties, on a tier-based approach, and based on their influence or their uh, nitrogen, phosphorus sediment load to the Chesapeake Bay, will be tasked with developing a localized plan, a county-level plan. And that county-level plan will include details as to what they want to do, maybe even where specifically they want to do it, and with whom and when they plan to do it. And as a result, what those will do aggregately when you add them up all together is not only reach the cumulative reductions necessary to meet our overall objectives for the Chesapeake Bay, but then give us that roadmap, that blueprint to move forward at that local level and actually be able to track and implement things at a much more finer scale and maybe even apply and, and them uh, technologies and information, I should say, information technologies and models that will be able to tell us not only what but precisely where to put these practices in the right places with the right people in the right locations. The Phase 3 WIP, as I understand it, is supposed to account for impacts from climate change specifically, and arguably we're already seeing a lot of that in the form of the, the severe flooding that has affected central and eastern Pennsylvania, especially over the summer. Um, how will the changing climate affect the watershed in the Chesapeake Bay, and what steps can we take in Pennsylvania to mitigate those effects? Ah, that's a million-dollar question in a lot of ways. <laughs> but uh, suffice it to say, you know, we are seeing, as you said, indicated, some of the impacts associated with this. The beauty in what is the existing plans and the current development of the Phase 3 WIP and the best management practices that are part of them, the beauty that they provide is that a lot of these practices, the vast majority of them, deal with or help deal with many of the symptoms, if you will, of climate change, whether it be because of increased precipitation rates and crazy weather patterns, uh, you, you, trees alongside streams and alongside streets will help absorb excessive amounts of precipitation, thus therefore reducing the amount of nuisance flooding. Uh, cover crops and soil health initiatives will increase organic matter and the water withholding capacity of agricultural landscapes, therefore keeping water in the soil and in the ground where it can be cleansed and cooled instead of in our rivers and streams causing erosion and flooding in our certain areas. And those practices also happen to be practices that reduce the amount of carbon that is escaping not only from our soils, but also captures that carbon through carbon sequestration through trees and uh, through vegetation and through soil health 
from the atmosphere. So the approach that the blueprint is undertaking, the phase three WIP, not only will address water quality issues, but has a potential benefit, a significant potential benefit to have a whole myriad of other natural benefits like climate challenges and stability in our local watersheds. And I want to get back to some of those uh, dividends that could be paid in a minute, specifically the, the reforestation work. But um, before we do that, I want to get back to this theme of working across state lines, as CBF does, and the, you know, the difficulties that that sometimes entails, I guess. I'm thinking of the rather harsh rhetoric deployed recently by the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who said that uh, Maryland's upstream neighbors, and here he singles out Pennsylvania and New York, uh, says they're not doing their part to curb pollution. Specifically, he's referring to, uh, I guess, trash and debris that washed downstream as a result of those floods I mentioned a moment ago, the symptoms, right? What do you make of that criticism? Is that fair? Is there something missing from that analysis that's worth pointing out? Well, I think it's important to know that the precipitation and excessive amounts of runoff and flooding that occurred over the last, well, frankly, last month, which was the wettest on record, the wettest July on record for the state of Pennsylvania, uh, created a unique situation in which uh, not only uh, people losing their property alongside streams, uh, but also, in unfortunately, in two cases, their lives. And so while what was physically seen in the Chesapeake Bay with the amount of woody debris and even in some cases uh, trash that was flowing down, it was emblematic of a, a frustration as it pertains to the overall endeavor in Pennsylvania, I think, in some of these other states, but really was uh, an unfortunate situation uh, that, that many Pennsylvanians experienced um, and as a result is not the, the normal, if you will, but it was a result of just excessive amounts of precipitation and flooding scouring our rivers and streams and carrying that down to the bay. But does it get at the problem specifically with the Conowingo Dam and the sort of dispute over the role that that should play in the cleanup effort? Well, the Conowingo Dam is certainly a part of the equation as it pertains to not only uh, withholding uh, sediments and particularly like phosphorus and some of the woody debris, from Pennsylvania and then with Susquehanna entering into the Chesapeake Bay. Um, but suffice to say, it's not going to be, it's not a magic bullet dredging behind the dam, uh, certainly completely dredging behind the dam, only by, buys you time, and that's an expensive time. And it doesn't set, shut off the, uh, the source of those pollutions, if you will, that's getting filling up behind the dam. It's uh, functionally equivalent to trying to drain the tub while the faucet is running. You got to turn the faucet off if you want to drain the tub effectively, and that means we have to actually restore our rivers and streams, particularly in South Central Pennsylvania, if we are to effectively address some of those concerns of the Conowingo. Well, let's talk about shutting off the faucet, to use your analogy. Uh, one thing that CBF is doing is the uh, Keystone 10 Million Trees Partnership, which is an initiative that has, I guess, a pretty self-explanatory goal. You're trying to plant 10 million trees across the Commonwealth by 2025. First of all, uh, a little bit more about the benefits of reforestation from a standpoint of stream health. How will planting a whole lot of trees get us a whole lot closer to achieving the larger goals we've been talking about? Well, we could probably spend a whole several hours on the benefits of trees, particularly trees strategically placed alongside streams, streets, and even some other priority areas in the landscape. But the bottom line is that 
our streams are naturally adapted to be forested not only alongside them, but in many of our watersheds. And over the course of time, uh, through colonialization, urbanization, the industrial revolution, we've lost a significant amount of that forest cover uh, in our sensitive areas. And so this endeavor to actually plant 10 million trees alongside streams and streets, primarily throughout part of the Pennsylvania, is intended to take advantage of those natural yeah, systems that trees provide. First and foremost, alongside a stream, uh, a, a forest, if you will, called a forested riparian buffer, is going to be able to remove whatever is coming off of the landscape, filtering it out through uh, the understory, the vegetation, the root structures, the healthy soils, any contaminants and nutrients that are coming off of that landscape that's adjacent to it are filtered and removed and ultimately even protected through infiltration and cleansing um, before it even gets to the stream. And once that water, though, does get to the stream, uh, forested riparian buffers, streams that have forested riparian buffers, are far more biologically active than streams that even have grass buffers or no buffers at all. And as a result, the stream, research indicates, can cleanse itself five to eight times greater than a non-forested buffer stream. So whatever pollution does eventually get into the stream is actually cleansed or attenuated through metabolic activity that is ramped up when we have streams that have forested riparian buffers along them. Then alongside streets, one of the critical benefits that is associated with trees is that it allows for any precipitation to be First and foremost, before it even hits the ground, it hits the tree canopy. Right. And when it hits the tree canopy, that, right, that precipitation is slowed down, spread out, and ultimately allowed to interact with the environment in a way in which it is cleansed of anything that has hitched a ride as it's flowing down from the air, or which grabs onto it if it happens to be flowing over a lawn or over a impervious surface. And research indicates that for much of our suburban and urban development, streets are the primary source and vector, if you will, for the generation and transport of stormwater runoff. It's kind of intuitive if you think about it, but they're like the functional equivalent of urban streams on the surface. And so if we put trees alongside streets, it's, just, it's almost like putting forested buffers alongside streams in that regard. And then they have the benefit of reducing the heat island effect, therefore keeping water cool as well as cleansing it. They have beautification benefits associated with the uh, community revitalization, as well as wildlife habitat improvements, not only in our urban suburban areas, but also primarily in our agricultural and more rural areas, where then you can take advantage of the uh, recreational opportunities that provide that as well, both in terms of uh, mammals on the land and the fish in the water. Why 10 million? Is that a, a magic number for any particular reason? Is that as ambitious as it sounds like a lot of trees? Is that a pretty heavy lift? It is a pretty heavy lift. And that's why it's a partnership, because we need partners and we need people. And through the partnership, we hope to be able to galvanize the planting of 10 million trees, a stretch goal for sure, across the landscapes of Pennsylvania, uh, along with our restoration staff here in the state, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed of Pennsylvania. But the number is, is based on science, is based on information, is based on primarily the buffer goal gap that Pennsylvania has established 
under its phase two watershed implementation plan for the Chesapeake Bay. And that gap is roughly 95,000 acres of additional forested buffers in the Chesapeake Bay watershed of Pennsylvania alone between now and the end of 2025. When you multiply that acreage by the average density of how many trees you plant per acre, roughly 200, you're going to get around 8.5 million. And then when you add those other tree canopy goals for our urban areas, as well as urban forested buffers alongside streams, you're closer to nine, nine and a half. And at that juncture, you might as well call it 10 because who's counting? Actually, we are, but that, well, yeah. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> In addition, as part of the Keystone 10 Million Tree Partnership, with which folks can jump onto our website at 10tenmilliontrees.org to look and see how they could get involved. We have in both the House and Senate a bills that are under consideration that have been introduced called the Keystone Tree Fund. This is a voluntary checkoff as part of a vehicle re-registration to donate uh, up to $3 towards DCNR's existing multifunctional forested riparian buffer program and the Tree Vitalize program, which helps fund tree plantings in our urban and suburban communities. I know another thing that you guys have been involved in recently is a campaign that uh, resulted in legislation to designate the Eastern Hellbender as Pennsylvania's official state amphibian. And I had to look it up. Uh, 26 states at least already have a state amphibian, which was news to me as well. The Hellbender, this is not a particularly cuddly looking creature. Uh, What made CBF want to take up the cause of the Eastern Hellbender? Why are they important to Pennsylvania? Well, this is a, just a neat little idea that actually was born out of our student leadership program. And one of the goals and objectives of that program is to engage students, high school students, of a particular, have a particular interest in a number of things, including civics. And through their exploration and investigation, they found what you found, that a lot of states, roughly half, have a state-designated amphibian, but Pennsylvania did not. And through their collaboration and exploration, they determined that, well, the Eastern Hellbender would be a perfect example or a perfect candidate for that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they are extremely unique in that uh, they're this aquatic salamander that can grow into pretty large size over a foot in length. They're only found in our most pristine waters, They are extremely sensitive to any type of pollution. And so they are sort of the uh, emblematic, if you will, species of clean and healthy waters. And so they're only found in a couple of locations, and therefore there's concern about their survival in Pennsylvania. And then they're also prehistoric. They're very unique uh, and also very old in their lineage and very sensitive to pollution. The combination of those three, we really felt made a a unique opportunity for those students to promote a a bill that uh, has passed the Senate, uh, but unfortunately is currently tied up in the House of Pennsylvania. So if the hellbender is this uh, sort of indicator species of, of stream health, 
How are they doing lately and what inferences can we draw from that? Is there evidence based on hellbender populations that things are improving in some areas? Yeah, so there's active research to identify and and really get a better handle on the population across the state of Pennsylvania. But the indications are that they are losing ground in in a lot of locations where there's uh, activity or otherwise human influences occurring throughout the watershed. And, and therefore that their um, habitat, if you will, that they can live in those streams is kind of shrinking. Um, but that active research also is looking at areas where maybe uh, we can identify them because they are elusive. So there's uh, researchers looking at ways to actually identify uh, species or I should say populations where we don't expect them or don't find them through DNA analysis, taking a stream sample and actually looking for uh, remnants of their DNA in the stream to identify a population that hasn't been identified previously. So right now there's active research to really kind of get a better handle on that, but all indications are that they remain a threatened species for sure that is possibly losing um, many of its traditional uh, habitat locations that are suitable for them. Harry Campbell, Executive Director for Pennsylvania with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Thanks for talking with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. And that about wraps it up for another edition of Pennsylvania Legacies. Glad you joined us for another one. We'll have a fresh episode in about two weeks. They come out every other Friday at PECPA.org, where you can stream our podcasts live. The whole back catalog is available in the audio section of the website. Wherever you find us, please do subscribe and take a moment to rate and review the show. Send us your feedback directly by email to legacies at PECPA.org. One way among many by which you can stay in touch with the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. On social media, we're active on Twitter at PECPA, P-E-C-P-A. Sign up for our monthly In Case You Missed It newsletter. You can find the link to subscribe to that on the website as well. One more time, PECPA.org. Pennsylvania Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. It's produced out of our offices on the banks of the Allegheny River here in Pittsburgh by me, Josh Rollerson, with help from PEC staff, including this week, Frank McGuire of the Trails and Recreation Program. Thanks again, Frank. Until next time for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.